This podcast is made possible by Host Analytics and U.S. Bank. Hello, this is Roberto Simon, CFO of WEX, and you are listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast. This is episode 292. How as a finance leader are you driving driving change in your organization? How are you driving change within your organization? In this episode, we speak to Steve Love, CFO of Dialpad. Then the most seminal thing occurred. We had two products, and and we we had a problem where they worked on the same platform, Jack, but they couldn't be optimized. You tried to optimize for one product, you suffered. The other product suffered. In addition, we were a mature company, and and I we had to understand where the value was coming from. Mature company, it isn't about revenue growth; it's about EBITDA. So we looked at both products. Realized that one high gross profit, but really it cost us money. It was a negative contributor. The other lower gross profit, but a little faster grower, and also positive EBITDA. And so we sold the former product, focused on the latter, grew that. We recorded the first year of positive uh, EBITDA for the company. Continued that focus, improved the product line, grew the EBITDA, and later sold the company uh, for 13x uh, EBITDA. Good outcome in a mature company. Listen to our complete interview with Steve after these words from our sponsor. It's no secret finance professionals are dealing with some pretty complex problems these days. Now more than ever, they need tools that can help them streamline complex workflows and focus on bigger strategic issues. By bringing your finance organization together on a single cloud platform, Host Analytics automates everyday processes that would otherwise slow you down. By streamlining your planning, modeling, consolidation, reporting, and analytics, Host helps you connect your organization so you can react more quickly to changing conditions and make better business decisions to optimize performance. Let Host Analytics be your partner in leading the evolution of your business. Hello, we're speaking with Steve Love. CFO of Dialpad, a cloud communication startup that a a quick Google search just revealed to me that Mark Andreessen joined its board last fall. So we'll take a leap and, and say Dialpad has been generating some good vibes lately. Steve, welcome. Thank you very much, Jack. Great to be here. So, Steve, we always like to sort of start in the same place, which is to discover a little bit about our guest and ask them to share what some of the milestones they believe uh, were that helped shape them uh, for a CFO role. What would those have been? Yeah, uh, I appreciate it. So I started my career like a lot of folks, seven years in Ernst & Young, and, um, yeah, loved the job, but got tired of uh, communicating to the to my clients after the fact, you know, that maybe revenue recognition would be different in their software contract, which is where I focused than they expected. So I was super excited to go in-house and I did with a great company, Portal Software. Uh, and that was super fun. And I learned how to uh, operate within a business. Uh, after three years, and this was in late 99s, early 2000s, after three years, I had a seminal experience um, in the midst of the dot-com, dot-com meltdown. Uh, I moved into sales operations, you know, truly uh, working for a brand new COO of what was a pipeline, what were the deals, how you selling them. I mean, intense stuff that as a finance person, you don't always get. 
huge experience made me really appreciate how difficult sales can be. You got to have really good accountability for sales, but respect that their job's tough. And so make sure you give them the support you need, the compensation that they require, and also, you know, hold them accountable, totally appropriate. So that sales ops job was really important for me. It grounded me in, in what the business really does. It isn't just about the accounting and forecasting, but we're out there selling some good stuff. Uh, I then had a couple of other jobs uh, that actually where people liked what, what my, my broadened experience with sales ops. And I picked up IT, I picked up facilities and also sales ops because I had a, uh, had a, a tendency to, to, to want to reach out and get involved in the operations. That led to, to my first job as a CFO. And that's where I had my most seminal experience. So after a year, uh, the CEO was exited, and uh, they asked me if I would be the interim C, uh, CEO. Uh, and I said, sure, uh, a couple of months. <laughs> that turned into a 12-month period. And uh, it, was, it was really intense. Um, you, know, you had a, a CEO who exited in and, and a situation where our employees didn't know much about what was going on. So my first step was to move, to go around to all the companies, 400 employees in a global company, about 10 locations, and tell them this is the company, right? We were a mature company. We had some 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 of the challenges of a commodity, but also we're still growing at a reasonable pace. But I want to make sure they understood the business, understood where all the good all the good things and some of the challenges, because they were part of 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 helping overcome those challenges. So that was great. I think it got everybody bought in and understood after kind of a dark period where we didn't have much internal communication. Then the most seminal thing occurred. We had two products and, and we, we had a problem where they worked on the same platform, Jack, but they couldn't be optimized. You tried to optimize for one product, you suffered, the other product suffered. In addition, we were a mature company and, and I, we had to understand where the value was coming from. Uh, so, uh, it, you know, uh, really our value was from the bottom line for EBITDA, mature company. It isn't about revenue growth. It's about EBITDA. So we looked at both products, realized that one high gross profit, but really it cost us money. It was a negative contributor. The other lower gross profit, but a little faster grower and also positive EBITDA. And so we sold the former product, focused on the latter, grew that, recorded the first year of positive uh, EBITDA for the company continued that focus, improved the product line, grew the EBITDA, and later sold the company uh, for 13x uh, EBITDA. Good outcome in a mature company. Seminal experience that then um, my subsequent CFO jobs uh, really helped because it, the CEOs understood that I had this experience. I didn't want to be a CEO. That's a tough job. But I could support the CEO with a much more full, rounded set of experiences, not just sales ops, not just G&A, but having been in that role for a year and made some, some big decisions. Okay, so when you arrive at at Dialpad, can you give us some sense of, you know, here we go again. What was what was your thinking? What was the type of job you wanted to create for yourself? Yeah, so I wanted to be uh, the business partner to the CEO. Yeah, uh, you know that might be something some folks say, but um, but that's the best role in the world, right? It's a big responsibility. What's 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 awesome about our role is. Uh, what we don't we don't develop the thing or market the thing or, or sell or service the thing. But we're in position to understand all of those things pretty well. We're in a great position to gather all the data and have a view. Uh, you may not always have the most informed view, so get yourself informed. Have a good, have good conversations. Look at the data, and then present the information back to the team. This isn't about being full of conflict. It isn't about pushing a particular agenda that you have. It's about figuring out what's best for the company. 
you know, and you, you sit on the data and you're able to present it. You're able to gather it, validate it, present, push it back to the employees and to the, your fellow execs. And that's a great job. And if you're doing it right, the CEO understands that you're the business partner, right? You can have these views of the different departments without having a without having you know a, a, a you know a horse in the race so to speak and that you know you can talk about marketing leads or how sales takes care of those leads without being one of those two parties you know trying to make yourself look better <laughs> so it's a it's a great demanding role you have to be on top of your business know your data communicate with people and I love it and that's what I wanted to have and that's what my great boss here Craig uh, was looking for in their first CE, CFO hire so. That's what I wanted, and uh, that's what that's what uh, the the responsibility they've given me here, and what we're working toward. When you think about your team today, though, and again, this this company venture back that's gone through a, a few uh, uh, funding rounds, are you hiring? Are you building out your team? Do you have a controller? What what are the sort of the next steps as you you look to build the finance function? Yeah, specifically here at Dialpad, I was lucky. We have a great VP of finance who came up through the FP&A side of the house, and to his credit, done a great job in understanding uh, what both the, the risks and the opportunities of, uh, are of, of compliance. Uh, so he, you know, you, you come in, you interview, I've had several jobs, and, you know, I always put up the, uh, you know, the filter of when you're telling me something in the interview, how much of this is real? And one of the reasons I like this job, this opportunity here at Dialpad was, I felt that the uh, the filter needed uh, to to take out less of what I was hearing than usual, and that was that was very much the case. You know, the the compliance matters were taken care of, great good for core forecasting, uh, but we didn't have enough folks. So my VP of finance had a couple of people, and so what we've done is, in recognition of how fast we're growing, we've added now a county manager, and we're going to build out more of the processing piece. The other key thing we've done is um, is hire a financial analyst, a senior financial analyst. So as I tell folks, I, I started here on election day. So I said, hey, the core plank of my platform is analytics, you know, metrics, metrics, metrics. Well, you can't just say that. You got to do it. And to do it, you, know, you need, to, need to have the right tools and the right horses to, to drive that, right? So it isn't, you're not spending all your time gathering, validating, but more time spending understanding it and communicating about it. So we have a great financial analyst who just started a couple of weeks ago and a couple of tools inside that we use to report the data. So then as we grow, we're going to add more on the processing side and accounting, and then we'll add another financial analyst. And then eventually, uh, not too long from now, we have to start supporting uh, operations outside the U.S. Okay, so let's find out a little bit about the opportunity that uh, you're pursuing here and what's the uh the competitive landscape like out there for dial pads offerings here? Business communications basically, you know, have, haven't changed in, uh, in a very long time, right? It's been uh, probably 20 years uh, that we've been doing the same thing for a conference call. You enter in the same ghastly seven to 10 digit code that may not work. You get on the phone call. You say, wait, no, who's on, you know, you're on a board call. You're not sure if someone joined or who joined. And telephony systems are the same, right? The, the handsets that are on desk phones. Uh, there have been no, no innovation in these areas for almost two decades. Meanwhile, people are outfitted with these fantastic phone, mobile phones and these, de- these desktops that are not just extremely powerful, but they also are perfect interfaces for interacting, communicating, and, you know, and directing data and, and directing how, what you want to do with a call, a business call or a phone call. 
but existing business communications barely even use those things. Another mega trend is uh, that so many things go to the cloud now. G Suite and Office 365, with those products, people have put their core infrastructure into the cloud, yet they still cling on to the, the public telephone or the, the public branch exchanges or PBXs that they've used uh, for, for so long. There needs to be innovation. And so what we've done is say, leave your desk phone behind. We're going to kill the desk phone. We're going we're gonna to leverage all those handsets out, those mobile phones and all those desktops to put your communications in the cloud, just as you have so many other core business services. In addition, we're not going to make you put in a five or six, seven, eight digit code or try to figure out for a conference call or figure out how to transfer someone by hitting a sequence of three digits that you can never remember. Instead, make it a simple, easy to use um, you know, interface, a graphical interface that allows you to do all the things you want to do. And it allows you to work from wherever. You don't have to go into the office to use your desk phone. Your office is the world these days, right? We refer to the anywhere worker, whether you're at home, you know, um, you know, office out in the field, you're traveling, or maybe your home office that is an open office environment. You know, all of these in all these areas, it's about you know, work is where what you're doing, not where you're going, right? That's the commonality. What are you doing? You could be anywhere. And so our product allows. Uh, companies to ditch all the, all that crazy old hardware, simple, easy to use monthly service, and leverage the existing infrastructure you have. No one else offers that combination of cloud support as well as easy easy to use uh, products and, and a monthly service fee. Well, we always like to ask about uh, those key metrics that you pay close attention to. This being a SaaS company, uh, we'd not be surprised to hear you say renewable revenues, but. Uh... You know, are you paying attention to cash? I would imagine as well. I, I, you know, what would you share with us so far as far as key metrics? Yeah, you, you hit the nail on the head. So, you know, we're growing really rapidly, uh, and so uh, the key, the the first tier of the key metrics I look at are the ones you mentioned. So, new bookings, and I look at them as from both new and existing customers, and I also look at new logos. Uh, the reason those are relevant is we have a land and expand model, right? So, first we sell to you. Uh, but we don't we don't sell your entire but we probably if you're a bigger company an enterprise over 1,000 employees in your enterprise we probably don't replace your entire phone system at one shot you have multiple offices you have home workers you have a lot going on you have different contracts tell you what we'll take down those one or two offices that are new or the one or two that are off a contract and then we'll expand into other other areas and we'll also expand with our other product and so land expand is important for us. So I want to look at new, and I do, I'd say with my morning coffee, I look at, you know, what is, what is my, what are my new bookings between new and existing and my new logos? Because new logos feed that land and expand model. Once I get beyond bookings, I look at my monthly recurring revenue. Uh, and I also look at my churn, as you mentioned, people, companies who don't renew. But more important for us, again, this land and expand model, I look at my, I look at my net retention. So, Net retention is my churn plus my expansion. So if, I, if my customer base expands more than they churn, I have a net retention. And so for us, for Atlanta to expand, that better be the case. And it is in our case. Most months, almost all months, our net revenue grows month over month from our existing customers as a result of that model. So those are the key things I look at, and they're so vital at times of this expansion. And then other two key things, gross margin. I want to make sure that we're operating efficiently and providing our service. And then, as you mentioned, cash burn. The, the SaaS model is cash consumptive, you know, because you're, you're going to spend a lot of effort up front and get paid over time. And so you have a plan and you know what, what that burn looks like, but let's make sure that burn is indeed on that plan. 
Just curious, as as someone who has really uh, sort of adopted the SaaS model, it's now your realm. Seems to me more and more finance uh, leaders are getting very much focused on the customer. And I'm just curious if you have any thoughts on um, how finance is likely to continue to evolve and play a larger role uh, when it comes to uh, customer engagement, measuring it. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I like to be operationally involved. You know, I've yeah, been in this, been the sales ops guy or own sales ops, but the interim, you know, the acting CEO for a period, I love the operations this is why we're here. Right. And also it's more interesting than, you know, than a monthly, monthly close process or renewing your insurance policies. But it's one thing to be interested. It's another thing to help drive it. So earlier in my career, I worked for, um, you know, package software companies. We sold you one deal and off sometimes more than you needed. <laughs> and that was it for the customer relationship. And, and there wasn't as much for a finance person to do. Uh, but in the, in the SaaS model, uh, it's, it's very different, right? Especially with a land and expand focus. Uh, and it's SaaS model now that it's been around for, you know, 15 years, there's so much history around at different stages, what are the metrics that you should consider and what are the benchmarks for you? And at land and expand model is different than other ones and enterprise focus is different than consumer. But man, there's so many out there that you can look at a lot of public filings and other parties and the analysts who produce their views that you can use it to figure out which metrics apply to you and what your target should be over time. Like our targets now at a period, uh, you know, where we are with our revenue will be different than two years from now. And maybe some of the metrics will change too. So the way this is great for a finance person is you get to step right in the middle of all this, right? Just, just like in the, you know, in the prior time, uh, before SAS models, all the information with the finance, you reported on it at the end of the month and you churned your forecast. And maybe you even churned forecasts once a, once a quarter. I mean, you don't do that in SAS. You're looking at some stuff daily, certainly weekly, and a lot of stuff monthly. And as a finance person, you can step into the middle of all that, be the person who gathers it, understands it, communicates with the, all the departments, and presents it. And that's such a, such a joy. It's such a pleasure to be that involved in the business. You're not selling the product necessarily, but you're involved in so many aspects of how are we setting it up? What are the targets? How are we performing? Why is that the case? That you really are much more of an operations person than a, than a than strictly a traditional CFO. So I love it. And again, it's you know a little more stressful for some people. It's out of their comfort zone. You know, I went to a great school and I got an accounting degree, and that's what I want to do. That's cool. And uh, other people want to be much more involved in in the operations of of the business. And I think that's super fun. So that's a, I think a big been a big shift uh, for finance people uh, in SaaS companies. Well, I think you've already shared a few insights that you've had along the way during your career, but we always like to ask for what we call a, a finance strategic moment, sort of an aha moment, where as a finance leader, you're able to, uh, you have the lines of sight into the organization and perhaps saw an opportunity or maybe a risk that wasn't as visible to others. Um, does anything come to mind as far as an aha moment? You bet. So, you know, in, in the intro, we talked uh, about my experience uh, at M-Blocks of syncing strategy with operations to maximize the strategic value, in that case, profitability, being a big uh, financial strategic moment. Uh, another one occurred uh, when I was a CFO at Evolve. So Evolve sold a, a predictive anal analytics SaaS service using the hiring of employees and largely by Fortune 500 companies. When I joined Evolve, uh, they had experienced success 
but we, we didn't have a customer profile for target marketing or any predictable selling metrics. Uh, for that matter, we didn't have a sales cycle stats uh, as we only recently started using Salesforce. So my first week there, what I did was I reviewed all of our deals today, fewer than 100, uh, noting that selling success, so a, a closed contract, took 18 months or more uh, from first contact to deal signature, and actually to a commercial agreement. That first commercial agreement uh, was a trial. And then we'd have a trial for several months or a little longer. And then if successful, typically it was, we'd have a contract. That's just a, just a huge commitment for a startup in particular. Uh, in addition, I noted that uh, there were uh, there are contracts we did sign included performance guarantees in our half a million to million dollar annual value contract. And that's because we were selling a lot of benefits to these Fortune 500s as a startup. And so they required these be put in the contract. So even at, even at a hundred, uh, even at a million dollar annual deal, we weren't making money on the contract due to the services requirement. So certainly the, the goal of a startup is not to make money on an individual contract, but the model has to scale and our existing model just wouldn't scale. So we had two issues. Number one, our sales cycles were too long for commercial proof points for a startup funding cycle. And number two, to deliver the performance guarantees and larger contracts, we had hired a really large services team, over one-third of the company, resulting in an overly large company that delivered value to the customers through the services rather than consistently through the software service. So I gathered up all this information, uh, some you know, Excel and PowerPoint, and you know, went to my, my fellow execs, and I shared that data. Uh, the head of marketing and product, who had recently been hired, said, hey, that makes sense. That's consistent with what some of the things that I'm seeing. So we worked together with approval of the CEO, and we developed and rolled out a land and expand go-to-market approach for smaller initial deals within, within enterprises in return for much shorter sales cycles, followed, the plan would go, by growth within the enterprise after the initial use. So rather than say, I need all of your business, hey, I'll take that one division or I'll take that one office. This provided the commercial success proof points needed so that we can get financing on a reasonable basis. In addition, and this is another fun thing for me because I like to get involved in operations, I, uh, I renegotiated several, all but one, of our existing contracts uh, that were about a million bucks. I reduced those by about a half to two-thirds in return for the removal of all the performance guarantees. So the customers at first said, wait, you want to reduce, <laughs> reduce what we're paying you? Well, yeah, and, and that we know why, right? Because we need to fit this land and expand model. So by doing this, we were able to reallocate some great people to the product rather than the services, which is key for a SaaS company that wants to scale. And then once revised, these contracts fit the new land and expand model that we were implementing uh, so that uh, they were existing customers. So we were able to have these, these proof points uh, with existing deals rather than have to only close you know, new deals uh, to show our progress. So performance guarantees are often problematic for both the vendor and the customer. Removal of these guarantees in return for a dramatically lower fee increase the customer satisfaction with the product as well. And the result for us was we were able to grow our ARR or annual recurring revenue by almost 50% over the following 12 months after we devised and implemented uh, our new go-to-market approach. Okay. I want to touch on the, the workforce with you. And uh, of course you're building one today and it's a role you've played before, but we're curious as to how uh, you view the role finance plays when it comes to that workforce and the types of priorities you have when it comes to uh, 
to building a workforce and managing it today. What would you share with us as to what your role as a finance leader is? Yeah, sure. So overall, uh, it starts with who, you know, what's the size uh, of the force? We're hiring, who are we hiring where? You know, so we've got a strategic plan. What is that plan? Do we know? Do we think that's the right one? How is that filtered down to operations? And then to drive those operating uh, you know, targets, what kind of hiring do we need? Um, so then, and also, you know, in my case, it's most CFOs, you, you also own the talent acquisition piece. And then I want to profile out of, of what, is, what, what, is, what do great people look like, you know, for, for those roles. Uh, from that point, once we agree what we're trying to focus, understand what the comp packages look like, um, you know, where we want those people to be located, uh, then, you know, we, we let the hiring managers, you know, move forward. What's vital for me is rather than say, you know, uh, have a say in who you're hiring, unless it's a senior role, in that case, you know, many of us want to be involved. But I want to, I want to understand, you know, what's the profile you're hiring for? What's the onboarding process look like to make sure we get the right person? And how, what's the mentoring structure look like when you get them aboard, not just the onboarding in the first week, but then who's going to make sure that they're optimally productive? You know, what are the, what are the points at which you're going to look back and, you know, with talk to me, you know, gauge, you know, how that person's performing. One thing our talent guy does here is uh, at the first couple of three month periods, three and six months, uh, one, one month, three months, six months, he sits down with them and, and says, how's it going, right? Little things like that. Both you get feedback on your process to make sure it's optimal, but you want to make sure that, that your process makes sense. And you may find out a few things that, um, that folks may not, uh, be, be not, may not otherwise you know, be aware of as a result of talking to these folks. You know, just checking in and see how things are going. Well, we've come to our mentoring round, which is when I ask you several quick questions intended to uh, inspire and mentor uh, aspiring finance leaders. What's one thing that's exciting you about finance and business today? Yeah, finance people are looked to be involved in the business, right? So the key thing is when you get inside, make sure you know where the data is, uh, what tools you have to reduce the amount of time you spend uh, gathering and validating and more time spent on, on producing the data and understanding what it means. But people, people outside finance look to us for this information. It wasn't always that way. You know, they just want to know their budget versus actual. Now they actually look to us to help drive their business. And it's a fantastic position to be in kind of demanding, but, but fun. What's that piece of information you wish uh, maybe someone shared with you the first time you, you stepped into a CFO <laughs> role? What was that? Uh, uh, maybe it was the missing piece of information. Yeah, you know, you know, uh, I'd say I'd say it's don't let the urgent overtake the important. You know, uh, I'm a to do list guy, like I think uh, a lot of finance people are, and you've got stuff at the top of your list barking at you for their for its attention, right? But that's fine. But is that the most important thing? Does it relate to strategy? Does it relate to making your operations are synced with that strategy? Is it, you know, is it something that's helping drive evaluation? Now, you can't always just focus on the most important and the sexiest, the most interesting, but make sure you're prioritizing those things consistently. Is there something you would have told your, uh, your 25-year-old self if you could go back in time? I think it's, Exactly that. Don't let the urgent overtake the important. <laughs> I think, uh, I, I don't know yeah. about, yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, I think I fell into a trap when I was, you know, uh, at EY. I loved it, but I took on too much, you know, and uh, I was, you know, I think I had pride in working 
you know, working so many hours, I was always in the, uh, the, the, the very top tier of hours worked, but is, is that, is that the best thing, uh, you know, to, 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 to do? Probably not. I think dial it back a bit, still be a good team player, still volunteer when they need help. Uh, but make sure that you really crush the most important items, uh, rather than potentially overextend yourself. You know, it's something that self-adjusts <laughs> in that you do become aware of that over time. And that helped form my view of, you know, about uh, focusing on the most important stuff and doing a great job on that. When you were at ENY, were you auditing startups or young companies? Yeah, yeah, up to up to two billion dollar companies, but primarily startups in the software and healthcare space. It was super fun. So, I mean, is that clearly what perhaps pointed the direction you you've gone down? Oh, for sure. Uh, the company uh, the company I worked for, Portal Software, coming out of ENY. They were my client for three and a half years. I love these guys. And uh, they were going to go into registration. Uh, and I was thinking about leaving E&Y after seven years. It was great, but I was interested in, in, in moving the industry. Uh, and the CFO uh, called me and said, listen, I heard you're thinking about leaving. Um, you have great revenue recognition and SEC experience. We could really use that. And what I'll do is teach you how you run a company. And this guy was, you know, uh, you know, he was an older, you know, he'd been around, been working for about 20 plus years, very successful. And I thought, wow, I can learn from this guy. Uh, so it was a great trade. And it also informed how I like to hire people, which is uh, I want the core functions that they're doing to be something they've done before. Maybe they've done it in different areas or a smaller company, but they're able to lend uh, instant performance to the company as a result of their experience. And they also need to be doing some new stuff. And over the course of, of, of their time with the company, the, the, the portion that's new may increase or decrease, right? It's cyclical. Sometimes you're working on new stuff. Sometimes you're working on the, to improve things or do, air, do you know, performance in areas that you've already done before to the benefit of the company. But it was a real, real big moment for me. And, and just the simple way he said it then informed uh, how I look to hire people these days. Like a lot of finance leaders, you sort of weathered uh... – uh, well, two economic downturns, and I got to believe the dot com when you were at uh, Portal was no small issue uh, in, the, in the high tech uh, realm. But then, yeah. then so many years later, you had to weather the uh, the, the the downturn. And um, curious if there are any lessons that you walked away with. I'm I'm sure there clearly are. But for this sector that you're in, what would you share with us as far as the lessons of those those two economic situations? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. It's, 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 a, it's a little dichotomous. Uh, the first is, you know, the sun's going to rise tomorrow, right? So let's, let's, not, let's not overreact. Let's be calm. Let's look at the data. Let's, 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 let's know that the world will, will keep turning. We'll come back here tomorrow. At the same time, be very, de- very decisive, right? So don't panic, but be decisive. Put the work in. Don't take too long. Don't take longer than you need to. Don't, you know, but and don't agonize over it, but make sure you get the right data and then, then take the steps you need to, but don't do so in a way that, um, you know, that's, that's panicky. And again, just know that, you know, the next day will turn tomorrow will be another day, the day after that, day after that, the years will go by and not, you know, so that, you know, the world will not stop spinning on its access. So be calm and methodical about how you do it, but also take very decisive steps. Just don't do it in a panicky way. Do you have a personal habit you believe has contributed to uh, your professional success? 
Yeah, for me, I, yeah, I think it's all about being inquisitive about the business and, and, and listening. And guess what? People are going to be very interested in that. Multiple times I attended you know, either trade shows or other people's staff meetings or other areas that had nothing to do with, with finance. It had everything, though, to do with our business. And you know, the executives or the other people in those departments said, hey, thanks a lot. Like, for example, here I attend, uh, you know, Monday mornings I start with attending uh, our enterprise, uh, the enterprise sales meeting run by our head of sales. I take a little break, get another cup of coffee, <laughs> and then I go to the marketing meeting every Monday to find out what their metrics are and the issues in front of them. It helps inform me about the business. And I think the people appreciate it. And at least, you know, that's what they tell me. And I would say, if someone doesn't want you to be involved, then I'd ask, well, why not, right? The world is different these days. Data has collapsed the walls between departments. So you shouldn't have any reason for me to not be involved. I don't need to be in every meeting, for example, at all. But uh, but being open, listening, if people invite you to a meeting, attend. You're going to learn some good stuff. You're going to grow as a professional, and you're going to learn a lot more about your business. Is there a book you'd recommend to aspiring finance leaders? Yeah, it's a, it, for me, there's one book I recently that I loved, and you know, I'm a, you know, I'm a high-tech guy in San Francisco, uh, so that probably informs a choice. But for me, what I loved reading was uh, The Hard Thing About the Hard Things by, by Ben Horowitz. So uh, he uh, it writes about his experience as a CEO uh, for a company uh, that uh, went through some hard times, and I can relate to it, you know, with with, uh, with the dot com bur- uh, bubble that burst. Uh, but it's great, and um, you know, the subtitle is "Building a Business When There Are No Easy Answers," and and that's the case whether you're in a bubble that just burst or things are off into the races. There's rarely easy answers, you know. Things oftentimes come with a challenge, and it could just be, "Do I spend?" this much more or do I spend this much more, right? There's always a challenge and, and, and that's okay. And so it's really comforting to know when I read the book, it's comforting to know that it's not just me <laughs> that thinks, okay, geez, let's make sure we do the work and get the right answer. Um, but also to get some practical advice in the way that Ben Horowitz uh, thought about it. It may not be fully applicable to a particular decision, but it gives a nice framework about how he goes about making decisions. Thought Leader listeners, don't go anywhere. We have more of our interview after these words from our sponsor. You want smart, clear, and honest guidance to help you meet the financial goals of your middle market business. With U.S. Bank, you have a partner who will help you find the right solutions to help your organization reduce payment costs, enhance control, improve cash flow, and expand your spend visibility. U.S. Bank's dedication to making ethical decisions and doing the right thing is at the heart of what they do, and their efforts haven't gone unnoticed. They've been named a 2017 World's Most Ethical Company for the third consecutive year by the Ethisphere Institute. To learn more, visit uspayment.com slash middle market. Okay, our final question. What are your priorities as a finance leader, Steve, over the next 12 months? So for, for me, it's generally speaking, uh, it's, uh, it's to continue to review the market for tools available to efficiently and accurately uh, you know, gather and report on uh, you know, business metrics. So we spend more time on what's going on in the business and present things increasingly in a graphical way to a dispersed group, right? So not just, hey, I'm going to put it in Google Docs or Excel, uh, but a tool that helps me present these things. There's always new tools coming out, uh, always better ways to use your existing tools. So that's generally. Here, here specifically, um, you know, at, at Dialpad, it's all about our commercial growth uh, during a period of 
scaling, uh, rapidly scaling the business. So for us, it's all about hiring and onboarding the right talent, particularly in sales, and wrapping efficiently and growing, you know, the new business bookings. So for what that means to me is we got a bunch of metrics, you know, that, that are relevant to that. And so it's monitoring those metrics and making sure the targets are right, making sure that we know where we are relative to the metrics and adjusting, you know, our investments, our OPEX and cash burn up and down based on how we're performing those metrics. You know, not just, not just knee jerk, we're under, we're over, but if we're under or over, understand why, you know, and then if appropriate, adjust your plan a little bit here or there. So those are, you know, both my general, 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 uh, you know, focus areas, but, uh, also specific to the to Dialpad for the next 12 months. Steve Love, thank you for joining us on CFO Thought Leader. My pleasure. Thank you, Jack. It's Jack Sweeney with a quick note that CFO Thought Leader now has a quarterly print magazine. That's right, print. Each issue will profile 25 different CFOs. Let me repeat that, 25 CFOs. Other uh, print publications are lucky if they're able to bring you five CFOs per issue. What we understand is that you want to consume content in multiple ways. But wait a minute, there's something more here. We wanted this print magazine to be a podcast companion. So when you receive it, we want you to quickly thumb through it and maybe identify which episodes you have missed. We want you to dog ear those pages, as well as uh, perhaps the pages that feature CFOs from episodes you already listened to but found maybe a little extra value from. 12 months later, you will have a library of 100 CFO profiles highlighted with your insights or comments alongside the CFO thought leaders. Now, how much are we charging for this one-of-a-kind 100 CFO profile library? Annual subscriptions are $119. We think that's reasonable. We thought about it a little bit, but that's, that's what we came up with. Uh, visit us and subscribe to CFO Thought Leader magazine at cfothoughtleader.com, where the future of finance is listening.